Hey everybody, Terry here. I'm just back from a little tour in the mountains here at home. Hope some of you are enjoying the spring in the Northern Hemisphere. Here, the sun is shining, the snow is melting, and the rivers are starting to swell. A week ago, I caught up with kayaker, friend, and activist Haley Stewart as she was rolling through town on her way back from Mexico and prepping to head back out to South America on another film project. Haley and I were on the same program at a TED Talk event last fall, and I was impressed by her curiosity and commitment in her life as an athlete and with her investigations on the impact of mega hydroelectric projects around the world. I'm glad we finally caught up for this episode. So, on the tales of our prior episode about the Ganges, here we are in the spring, talking again about the power of big rivers. I hope you enjoy. from our experiences as explorers and forged by a commitment to the positive change we want to see in the world. This is the Adventure Activist Podcast. Kayakers probably have more encounters with hydroelectric projects than any other demographic in the world, you know, and we're really well positioned to recognize these trends. From the Maipo, it seemed every place we went to, every amazing, incredible place that we were so lucky to be paddling in and exploring was threatened by some kind of hydroelectric project. Then you begin to ask yourself, well, why are all of these beautiful, beautiful places that are so important to the region, why are they threatened? And she said, it's pan para hoy, hambre para mañana. It's bread for today, hunger for tomorrow is what these dams are giving us, you know, a little bit of work today. And then tomorrow we have nothing because we've lost our river. We've lost the ecology of the land. We've lost our community here. Welcome to the Adventure Activist Podcast. I'm your host, Terry O'Connor. This is a place for meaningful conversations with accomplished athletes, inspiring adventurers, and influential activists. Through their journeys, stories, and life discoveries, we deconstruct how our guests add more meaningful value to the world and do some good with their passion for adventure. Welcome to Episode 7 with Haley Stewart. Haley developed a passion for rivers as a whitewater kayaker at the age of 16. Kayaking in three continents exposed her to the sobering realities of mega hydroelectric projects and their impacts on people and ecosystems. Inspired by the communities who campaigned against the Alto Maipo hydroelectric project in Chile, Haley subsequently pursued studies in environmental science, Spanish, and anthropology at the University of Denver. Her eventual thesis focused on the impact of social and environmental campaigns on Chile's hydro development. Haley has since worked throughout Latin America with local communities and environmental campaign leaders to address and document the threats posed by mega dams in an increasingly globalized and power-hungry world. Using film to create awareness, her videos are currently used in graduate and undergraduate environmental science classes. In the hour ahead, we talk about her path, starting from a love of running rivers, to developing a curiosity about the impact of dams, not only in the rivers, but also the land and its people. In our conversation, we visit Uganda, Bolivia, and Chile, and recount some of the stories she would tell in her studies and films. We expand on her plans to embark on another important project in Bolivia, and in the end, she provides some insightful reflections and advice from her life so far, running some of the biggest water in the world. Hope you enjoy. Since we first met in the fall at uh, the TEDx in Sun Valley, you've been away traveling a bit, uh, and certainly a lot has kind of gone down in the last six months. Um, how was Uganda? You, that was the first thing you were back off to in January, right? Yeah, exactly. So, well, actually, back in June, I got surgery on my shoulder, and so that was a six-month recovery. And so January was really, I guess, the debut of my shoulder in whitewater kayaking and it performed 
pretty beautifully. Awesome. So I was very happy about that. And Uganda was really, really amazing. It, I hadn't been back in about six or seven years. And to go back, it was, it's just such an incredible river, the White Nile. And to surf and to see the unleashed competition and to help volunteer uh, with them. I think the purpose of the trip was, one, to help volunteer with the competition, two, to test out the new shoulder, and then three, to um, unfortunately say goodbye to some really incredible rapids for um, another dam that was built and is now filling the reservoir. Yeah, so let's let's talk about the history there in, in Uganda and on the White Nile because this was your second trip there and also your second experience of watching a section of the river essentially disappear. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. So in your first trip, what had what had happened? I guess you'd you'd had an opportunity to um, to paddle. I guess it was a silverback section, right, or the rapid on the White Nile. And shortly after that time, was it within like a period of months that they had installed a dam uh, on the White Nile? Yes, I think within a matter of months, they stopped letting kayakers and commercial rafters pass through that rapid. So we were some of the last people, and that was um, really special in one sense and really sad in another sense to see that rapid disappear and also the Bujigali Falls, um, which are were really important to the locals there as well. Mm-hmm. Was this part of the motivation then to go back this time around? I mean, not only the in, in invitation to help with the comp, but it, you were aware that another section of the river was about to disappear, essentially? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. They had, so they had planned to fill that reservoir probably about six months earlier. And then I found out that we had another few months. And so I decided, oh, now's my chance to go. I thought I was too late. And so I felt really lucky to be able to paddle those sections one last time. I mean, I guess there's one party that probably feels sweet. I got to run this before it disappears and before nobody else is able to run it. But at some other point, I imagine it's kind of bittersweet just because you know that nobody else is going to be able to run it. (laughs) I think one thing that was really impactful to going back this second time was seeing the places that had been flooded six or seven years earlier back in 2011. You know, places that have once been these beautiful, tremendous rapids. Um, It was now just a total lake, you know, a huge, huge lake. And um, that was really impactful to see how just, just how much it had changed, how much it had risen. Yeah. And were there any encampments or villages at, at this area that had to be displaced because of the lake that now exists in that area? Yes. As far as, you know? yeah. as far as the new reservoir that they're filling, they're not entirely certain how far the reservoir will go. So they're not entirely certain which villages will be replaced. But essentially, from my understanding, what I've been told is that these villages, the way that they're compensated is that they're compensated for the materials that they own, essentially. So if they have, let's say, an adobe house with, you know, a few metal pieces in there to form the structure, they'll be compensated for those, for the worth and the value of those metal pieces. And that's pretty much it. And they're not given new places to live. They're not given, you know, new designated land. Right. So that's, you know, the injustice there. Yeah. Have you had any conversations with anybody personally that was like directly impacted by a change like that on the banks of a river, either in, in Uganda or anywhere else in the world? So back in 2014, I went to Chile and did my thesis project on hydroelectric development in Chile. And so um, I spent some time with Bewenche Mapuche, people who had been relocated by a series of mega dams on the Biobio River. And essentially what had happened was that they took these communities that had been rooted in this land for quite some time, for generations, and basically picked them up and dispersed them into nearby cities. And so when they're taken from their land and separated from their families, it kind of results in a, in a type of disintegration of that community. The Puente Mapuches negotiated uh, with 
the hydroelectric companies with, I think it was Indesa. And so Indesa paid them, compensated them. To and move, essentially, to move. is what you're saying. Yeah, okay. And still, after the construction of those dams, those two communities became the poorest communities in Chile. They had the highest rate of suicide in Chile, which tripled the national average. And they also had the highest prices for electricity in Chile. So a lot of them didn't have electricity because they couldn't afford it. Wow. The tragic irony there. Right. Yeah, and so yeah. that was kind of um, exhibit A for Chile and kind of setting the tone for, okay, you know, maybe these projects aren't doing the things that we think they're doing or maybe they're having more adverse impacts than we think or than we expected, even though we thought that these compensations would be sufficient and would be fair, it turns out that they're not helping these people in the way we thought they were. I, I imagine you may have had some conversations with those very displaced peoples or, or villagers in regards to that. Is, is there a, a person, woman, man, child, or anything that you remember talking to specifically that was really impactful to you? Because I know that going on projects myself, sometimes, you know, I'll look at the data on the paper and the impact and the reports, but there's, uh, it's often in conversations just like this that I'm like, wow, man. <laughs> so one person that really comes to mind is, uh, Ilda Riquelme Guanteau. And, um, she's Bewenche Mapuche and her family was relocated by the dams. And she really noticed a change in her people. Um, she said it was like a, a deep, deep depression that they went into. And I think it was really hard for the elders, but then also for the young people, because when they were compensated, they're not compensated for the next generations. She said, like, these compensations might help us now for a little bit, but they're not going to help our future generations. They're not going to help us in the long term. And speaking with Soko Astorga, who lives in the Maipo Valley, another, um, the Maipo River is also threatened. And she said, it's pan para hoy, hambre para mañana. It's bread for today, hunger for tomorrow, is what these dams are giving us. You know, a little bit of work today, and then tomorrow we have nothing because we've lost our river. We've lost our, the ecology of the land. We've lost our community here. I guess, how did you end up in that area asking these questions in the first place? What was the motivation that led you to kind of start asking these questions or, or have this project that led you down that road? So Chile has always been a huge inspiration for me, especially in terms of hydroelectric development. It was really the place that I first found out that there was even a conflict or controversy surrounding hydroelectric development. And that was when, do you mind if I just talk about high school? Yeah, absolutely. Of <laughs> so, course. That's the question. Um, yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, uh, so going to the high school, New River Academy, which was a traveling, boarding, kayaking high school. Okay. And we went to Chile and we stayed with the Astorgas in a beautiful, beautiful place called Cascada de las Animas, Waterfall of the Spirits in the Maipo River Valley. And we were kayaking the Maipo River every day, and it was beautiful. It was a paradise. You know, it's a, one of the best wine regions in Chile, and they have pumas, they have sanctuaries. It's in the Andes. It's just the most beautiful, magical place you can imagine. And then to find out that the people there were, were confronted with this uh, huge conflict, and these people were fighting against this hydroelectric proposal, the Alto Maipo project. That was the first time I thought, well, wait, why are these people who love their land and who are environmentally conscious, why are they fighting against this, this hydroelectric project? And that's kind of when I began to learn, well, it's not as green you know. And is that why you mean, like, why are they fighting? You kind of thought it was a, a clean energy or a reasonable way for them to, to develop energy resource within their country at that time? Exactly, because that's what I think in the U.S. especially we're really, you know, everywhere. You think alternative energy, you think dams, you think hydroelectric. And it has a, 
hydroelectric energy has this huge appeal because it's constant. You know, water flowing through turbines generates constant electricity. So it has an advantage over solar or wind, which are more intermittent. So it has a big appeal. And on a technical level, it is very clean energy, water flowing through turbines, taking advantage of gravity. It seems really utopic in yeah. a way. But mm -hmm. then when you put it on these big scales and you start and you, you, you put it in a, in a real context and on a huge scale, then you start impacting a lot of different things. You start impacting the ecosystem. You start impacting the people. And what you realize is you're not just impacting that localized place, you're, you're impacting the entire river above and the entire river below that dam site or that hydroelectric project site. And how are you exposed to, I guess, the, the contentious issue? Was it actually part of the coursework there or was it just speaking with some of the locals during your travels and your stays uh, in the valley itself? My high school Spanish teacher, Lorenzo mm -hmm. Astorga, we were staying with his family on the Maipo River and in the Maipo Valley. And so their family is really uh, involved in the topic and in protecting the land. And so we really learned from speaking with them, you know, because they're people who, who really appreciate the land and take care of it. They have an animal sanctuary there. They have restoration projects. Um, they, they really take care of the land there. So we learned about it from them. Of course, you see these signs everywhere saying, no alto maipo, no alto maipo. And you start thinking, well, what is this topic? Why is it so contentious? And from there, we started learning. But not just from the maipo. It seemed every place we went to, every amazing, incredible place that we were so lucky to be paddling in and exploring was threatened by some kind of hydroelectric project. And then you begin to ask yourself, well, why are all of these beautiful, beautiful places that are so important to the region, you know, why are they threatened? And, you know, what is this about? <laughs> so yeah. what's going on here? Right. So what did you, what did you learn that obviously sparked kind of a fire in you clearly as far as an interest on the impact of these dams and where did where did that go for uh I guess from there for you and and your kind of interest on this issue that's a great question being in New River Academy seeing the rivers talking with people and realizing how little people actually know about this topic and how misunderstood it is and how complex it is too uh first of all that inspired me to study environmental science in college. And as I studied, as I was going to college, I kept thinking back. I kept thinking back to the Maipo, to Patagonia, where the, uh, the Hydra Sen project was proposed, to Uganda, where, you know, the White Nile, one of the biggest rivers, was, you know, confined by these dams. And I just kept thinking about it, kept thinking about it. And then in 2014, I studied abroad in Bolivia, uh, with, with a program called SIT. And at the end of this program, each student had to do a one-month-long independent study project. And they basically told us, I don't know if this is what they were supposed to do, but this is what they told us. They said, pick a topic, pick a place, pick a way to present it. Here's $600, go. So obviously I chose to do it on a hydroelectric project <laughs> <laughs> that, um, that no one knew about. It was a proposal that was in the north of Bolivia on the border of Brazil in a small, small town called Cachuela Esperanza in the Amazon. And uh, no one really knew about this project, but if built, this project would have produced about two thirds of the country's current consumption of energy. Wow. Huge. Yeah. Huge. And it was uh, proposed actually by the Brazilians. And so I went up and I talked to people and great thing about Bolivia is that people are, are very accessible and, and willing to talk with you. So I just got in touch with like a lot of the, the best minds on the subject and all of the professionals and um, they were all just really gracious and, and decided to talk to this American student who was uh, poking around this random topic. So you literally just showed up and started asking questions? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And it was a little sketch, you know, 
traveling alone in, in the north of Bolivia, I probably wouldn't do it. You know, they don't really check your passport. So I was, I didn't really realize what, what that region was about, but, um, but oh, really wandering interesting. Rubia. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so I think I was just really, really lucky to do that. And then upon returning to the U.S., or actually, no, before I, before I came back to the U.S., I was thinking to myself, well, man, I would love to do a thesis on this. If I, if I could do my thesis on anything, I would do it on this subject. While but you were I, down there asking While I was question. down there. Oh, and okay. I said, oh, but I'd love to do it in Chile, you know, the place that first inspired me. Oh, yeah, okay. And so I talked to my advisors back home, and I said, oh, like, I really want to do this. I want to go to Chile. Uh, what can I do? And they said, no, just come come back to the States. We'll talk about this, calm down. And I was like, no, they're going to have a, they're going to have a protest. I want to make a, a movie about it. I have to go now. <laughs> so <laughs> at the end of Bolivia, I just, instead of going back to college, I took a quarter off and then just went to Chile and, and stayed with the Astorgas again. And they helped connect me with a lot of really interesting people, um, who were involved in the in the Maipo conflict, in the Biobio conflict, in the Hydraisen conflict too. So I just got to talk with so many people, and I was so lucky to have um, so much help and support uh, on that, and with that from so many different sides. And I got to talk to people on all different angles, from the hydroelectric companies to the people who were leading the campaigns to the indigenous people who were replaced, to people who would have been replaced in Patagonia, to people from solar companies, to mayors and politicians, and just got a whole range of perspectives. And, and that, I think, really developed my understanding of the topic. Huh. And and you are now, this was how many years later from, from that first experience in the Maipo River Valley from high school? I mean, this is... Oh, Lord, that was... What's the time gap now? So... The, Eight years. Eight years. Okay. Eight years, and they're still they're still fighting. Yeah. yeah. Well, I guess I've just I, I think about in my own life like <laughs> how much you can learn and how much your filter changes over eight years. And so I imagine you know the first time you're there, you're a high school student, you're there to boat in this like fantastic, wonderful foreign land that's tropical and jungle like, <laughs> and then you're having this surprise lesson on this issue that you think shouldn't have been an issue before, like what's going on here. And now you're going back eight years later as a much more informed consumer, essentially, of the information. You're asking very targeted, focused questions about how all parties are impacted by, you know, the development of these large dams on these rivers. And even then, you're doing it really based on passion, because at this point, there wasn't really like, you hadn't talked with any counselors or master's degree, like counselors or anything like that, or a thesis counselor, you just wanted to go there to apply what your interest was to the issue that you learned about eight years prior. Yeah. I, I went with a lot of questions and not really knowing what I wanted to do with it. Just knowing that that was the topic that, that really called to me that I really wanted to explore and learn more about and understand. Because I think ultimately, I think what drew me to it so much was that I just didn't understand it. I didn't understand why is it seen as being so good? What is the balance? Is it bad or is it good? Is it, or does it depend? It's not a black or white issue. It's so complex and you can argue it many different ways because you could also argue it, well, if we don't build these mega dams, if we don't build these huge hydroelectric projects, well then we'd have to be importing these fossil fuels and diving more into petroleum extraction. But after speaking with a lot of people, it doesn't seem like moving in the direction of mega hydroelectric development is moving away from any kind of extractive industry. It's still an extractive industry. As our conversation continues, Haley offers her components to the solution and expands on the impacts of mega hydroelectric projects all around the world.
really hard question to answer, but it has multiple answers. I could give you the technical answers well, by saying, well, you know, what we, we need to do several things on a technical level. We could diversify our energy sources, take from solar, geothermal, wind, you know, all these other sources. We could have demand side management, which means- Make them smaller or- Reducing your demand for energy, making things more efficient. Supply side management is um, making your supply more efficient. So don't lose as much energy in transmission lines. And the reason we lose so much electricity in transmission lines is because we have these huge projects, huge, huge mega projects, and then hundreds or thousands of miles away is the destination for that electricity. So we lose a ton by having these huge projects. Or I could give you the second part, which is the more difficult answer, is that we need to be start making our infrastructure more people-centered instead of more company-centered, I suppose. You know, that might sound like a very communist thing to say, but, <laughs> but what I mean by that is, um, you know, in building projects that have more impacts to people than they do benefits, it's ultimately not achieving the goal that you're supposedly setting. So, for instance, you're, you're a government or a company may argue that doing this is ultimately going to provide better access to modern technology, electricity at a cheaper cost. But the truth is, is it actually has a larger adverse impact to the very people that they're arguing they're going to serve with the, with the project. Is that kind of what you're getting at? I think my ultimate take on, on the issue is that we shouldn't be gambling such a precious resource in order to produce electricity, which has other means of production and generation. And what I mean by gambling, when I say we're gambling the water, I, I say we're, we're gambling it because when someone proposes a mega hydroelectric project, you can never take into account all of the impacts you're going to have because it's not a contained project. You affect everything upstream, everything downstream. You affect every area that a transmission line passes through. You affect the people, you affect the flora, the fauna, you affect the climate in that region. If you make a reservoir, you are changing that climate and that hydrological cycle there. So we don't take into account all of these impacts and some of them can be very detrimental. In the instance of the Alto Maipo project, it's not a dam that they're building, but it is a mega hydroelectric project. It's a bypass tunnel, which means that they take the water underground and then return it, I think it's about 70 kilometers downstream. But in those 70 kilometers where all those towns are situated, um, you know, Andean climate, it's dry, that river is fed by snow melt, and that river is, is supporting all of the ecology there. And so when that water is no longer flowing as it normally would be through that area, it affects that entire ecosystem. The Maipo Valley has a lot of little pockets where endemic species live, um, and they only exist in those little micro ecosystems. So you, you really change a lot. And so when you're gambling with water, and then in other places, they have found that like where they've built dams, the quality of the water has gone down. The flows of the water has gone down. And the biodiversity of the regions has decreased as well. And so those are impacts that, you know, you, you might give them a certain value in the beginning, but then you might not realize how important they are later. Mm -hmm. and, or until later. Until later, yeah. In, in your TED Talk, you highlighted a couple of the other, you know, unanticipated or unexpected adverse impacts of these these mega dams. Um, and, you know, this is kind of continuing on this theme that you're talking about right now. It's like a closer look at the dangers of mega hydro. Um, can you kind of bring up a couple more examples that you've mentioned before uh, on this idea? There can be, you know, depending on the project, there can be many unanticipated impacts. You know, it is, it is known that um, mega reservoirs, when you shift all that water, can actually provoke earthquakes. 
uh, on a big scale, if you're shifting that much water, you can actually alter the rotation of the earth, like the reservoir, the Three Gorges Dam. Which uh, is in China. In China, exactly. Mm-hmm. And uh, China has an interesting role when it comes, or they have an interesting history when it comes to uh, hydroelectric development. They had a dam fail in I think, 1973 or 1975. And there were many villages that lived right below the dam. And it killed something like 100,000 people. They're, they're not even sure of the number, but they didn't release the information until 1994 or something like that. So they can have catastrophic events if they fail. And they never anticipate that they're going to fail. Yeah, you know? of course. <laughs> Ideally. <Yeah. laughs> and hopefully they don't. Right. But it's a big risk, and that's another gamble. That's another concept of the gamble, yeah. Yeah. Right. I think it's really interesting in your case because uh, for one reason or another, it wasn't wasn't about the boating in the rivers. Like, that was enough that eight years later you're going to take your, your interest in this very complicated topic about mega dam uh, installation and hydro projects. And you're not going there looking for a solution. You're not going there to be the definitive expert on what are we going to do about this now, but more because you felt like it was a misunderstood problem. Like there's something that's missing that people don't understand about the impacts of these, right? Yeah. I think that's definitely the case. Yeah. I think for me, speaking with people and seeing how it changes and 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 it's it's really the people who know the land the best, right? And so their observations of saying like, well, they didn't anticipate that they were going to change this, but they changed it. They said it wouldn't change, and now it's destroyed. And they said that we would have this, but we don't have this. In fact, we had less than we had before. Uh, that was really impactful. And I also think, but... The difficult thing to negotiate is that, yes, I think I think talking to the people is is was really strong for me. But then I've also talked to people, a lot of uh, you know, business economics or business or economically minded people who say, um, well, we need this. It's good on a good scale, and that energy is going to millions and of people. And so it's good. And I think that's the hardest perspective to, to negotiate because on the one hand, they have a point yeah, yeah. <laughs> on the one hand, they have a point. And that's, I think that's the hardest side to appeal to in, in the, in the argument, because I, after speaking with people on, from all perspectives, I genuinely believe that it's not good for macroeconomics. You know, it's good for a, a few people who are making the investments, but ultimately the people who you would think that it's supposed to be benefiting are not getting benefited in a meaningful way. Yeah. And what's what I guess what makes you convinced of that or your, based on your kind of personal experience of asking these questions and spending time with the people? Is it their personal narrative, their stories of how it's impacted them or this concept that you mentioned before that it's a short, it's a short term money in the pocket, but in the long term, it's displacing them from their livelihood or whatnot? I guess a little bit of both. I think traveling and what struck me most was the repetition of this trend all around the world. For example, the same thing, what's happening in Uganda, making series of dams on um, on the Nile that is having all of these impacts, and you have a certain political climate that makes it possible but doesn't make it necessarily viable is the same thing that's happening in Bolivia. And seeing it on kind of a global scale and a global trend and you can see projects that happened 20 years ago, ones that are in the making right now that are being built, ones that have just been completed, ones that are being proposed. And you can see it's like looking into a time capsule. Hmm. A lot of the same things are being repeated. A lot of the same mistakes are being repeated. And you can't fix these things retroactively. 
once you change a region, it's changed. Yeah. Do you think that was part of what kind of created your, your calling to, to look into this so passionately like you did is because you saw, as you learned more about it, this kind of repetitive cycle and that people weren't really aware of the impact um, or weren't thinking about the impacts on the local people in 10, 20 years down the line? I think absolutely. Yeah. And I also think I felt um, it's, not many people have the opportunity to travel the world to kayak yeah, <laughs> and see these situations. I think kayakers probably have more encounters with hydroelectric projects than any other demographic in the world, you know, and except for the hydro companies themselves. So in a way, we're really well positioned to recognize these trends. People who are drawn to rivers in many different places. Um, I mentioned in my in my TED talk that, uh, it's like kayakers seek big rapids. We want big rapids to paddle and to, you know, feed our adrenaline, mm -hmm. but hydro project, hydroelectric companies seek the same thing. You know, they're also looking for big rapids because, um, you need a lot of gradient and a lot of volume to make a big dam. So I guess in your mind and your, there's not a right answer for this, but in your case, like why do you think you cared <laughs> to learn more in the end? That's a, that's a great question. And, and I've been asked that before yeah. and I'm never quite sure how to respond. Um, you can try as best you can because <laughs> there's not I, a right or wrong answer. Yeah. yeah. I, I definitely feel compelled to protect rivers and people and ecosystems surrounding them. I see them as being, extremely important to society and civilization you know every since the dawn of of humanity mm -hmm. and all the ancient civilizations to all the most modern and far-reaching cities today depend on rivers mm -hmm. and i think we really underestimate their value and i think very soon we're not going to underestimate their value they're going to become really really important as competition for resources increases, competition for rivers will increase. And the way we're managing the rivers right now is, well, it's, it's, uh, it's really irresponsible. Yeah. I think we're just starting to realize that. But a lot of the mistakes we made in the past, they're not reversible. And we know better now. So why are we still making those same mistakes, those same irreversible impacts to the river? Yeah. You know, I, I think you get your eyes open because you're seeing it in a, in a, in a micro scale, you know, your, your first trip there in high school and you're seeing the impact, um, or the perspective impact on the local environment and certainly the people and the conversations you're having with families that you're staying with, uh, then the curiosity develops, right? <laughs> and then you start looking into the question and you're like, wait, this just happened in another area of the world 10 years ago. And look, it's happening also in China. Oh, and look, there's another project in, in Africa. And oh, look, not only Chile, but also Bolivia. And then you start thinking to yourself, well, if nothing's changed and all these impacts are happening and we're just going to continue to do it, what is the ultimate end game here? I can imagine coming to that realization over six, eight years can certainly inspire a fair amount of passion about the topic. Yeah, I, I think you nailed it. Yeah. <laughs> I think you nailed it. Is, yeah. is that um, that contrast of seeing it on the micro scale and saying like, oh, okay, well, uh, this community is having this conflict and this region is experiencing this thing. This city wants to make this infrastructure. So you have like the small, you know, small town regional context. Then you have you know, the bigger, the city, the regional, or even the national infrastructure needs and aspirations. Mm -hmm. And then you have this kind of global trend. And then you have it over time. You know, in, in the U.S., we had our hydroelectric boom in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and then just taking off. And then seeing how other countries are just beginning their hydroelectric boom, but with more modern technology, meaning that they can go bigger and bigger than ever before.
With her sights set on making a difference, Haley expands on her way to respond to the issue, both as an advocate and an activist. And she introduces her latest film project coming up in Bolivia, Still River, Silent Jungle. After speaking with a, a, a lot of people, especially in Chile, it seems like the first step is always raising awareness about the issue because surprisingly few people know about it and or, or even know that there is an argument or a debate about it. You know, a lot of people take it for granted, oh, it's a green energy. Or some people might take it for granted, oh, it's an evil energy, you know? So there's a, there's a medium there, there's a balance. And... So I think the first step is, is always raising awareness. And then sometimes it's about just educating the right people. A lot of people who make decisions might not be informed about the implications. Sometimes just informing the right person can make a big difference. If it's a politician, if it's a CEO, if it's a um, community leader, that can make a big difference. Mm-hmm. Right. And obviously, that's uh, a bit of a global scale. So that's kind of the avenue of being an advocate and educating, like in our conversation here and in your TED Talk. But I imagine there's still something that's very satisfying about a small project, you know, where you're actually directly involved and you have a a sense of what's happening on the ground and speaking with the people that are impacted. And is that, um, I guess I bring that up because is that part of which led you into this next project coming ahead um, this spring. I guess, how did, how did the inspiration for going to this region of the world in Bolivia kind of come up? So you talked about um, in terms of being on the ground and working on the project, that has a lot of benefits for me because I very much see myself as being in this, uh, in this stage of learning right now. I could very well go into a career of policy right now if I wanted to, or if I I could have gone there right after college and, you know, worked in an office and just kind of read the statistics from far away. But being on the ground, talking to people who are affected by projects, who are making decisions about projects, who might be resisting projects, who might be promoting projects, that to me is a huge, huge learning experience. And I feel like I've barely scratch the surface of it. So that's where I am right now is, is wanting to go on, to be on the ground more, to work with people more, to hear more about it, to learn more about it, because I'm still developing my own understanding of the topic. So <clears throat> going to Bolivia, that was definitely, the wheels of that were definitely set in motion when I studied there in 2014 and was studying the Cachuela Esperanza project in the north, that's been set aside, but uh, as being kind of inviable, that project. Um, But I kept in touch with my advisors from Bolivia with some indigenous contacts, and we've been talking, and then they told me, okay, well, they've decided to go through with this new proposal for the Chepete and Bala mega dams on the Beni River, which is located just in the heart of the Bolivian Amazon. And so I talked to my advisors and they said, well, they've proposed this new project and it's actually not new, it's modified. It's an old project proposal. So the old design was gonna flood 2000 square kilometers of Amazon rainforest. And then, and that was when it was just the Bala dam. And then that was rejected as being inviable or they didn't have the funds or something like that. And then they proposed a new design, which put in a second dam, the Chepete Dam. Adding the Chepete Dam, where it was situated geographically, it actually decreases the size of the reservoir by half. So now it's only going to flood like a thousand square kilometers of Amazon rainforest. Which I see as being quite a lot. (laughs) um, 
And it's also going to relocate 53 indigenous communities in mm -hmm. the region. Now, in a country, Bolivia is uh, it's a plurinational state. That's how they consider themselves. And they recognize the autonomy of 36 different ethnicities, different indigenous groups. So to suddenly relocate 53 indigenous communities is quite problematic, as you can imagine. And on top, these thousand square kilometers that are going to be flooded potentially rest in two national parks, the Madidi National Park and the Pilon Lajas National Park. Madidi is a biological reserve. It is one of the most biologically diverse and rich regions in the world, one of the top three, and is also home to the Uchupiamona people and a couple other indigenous groups as well. Pilon Lajas is an indigenous reserve. And um, Bolivia was celebrated as one of the first countries to recognize the rights of the Mother Earth, like the rights of nature. They made a law, La Ley de la Pachamama, uh, the law of the Mother Earth. There's a Pachamama right behind you there on that shelf laying down. <laughs> oh, that one? Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> I'll show it to you later. Yeah. <laughs> <Great>. <laughs> uh, and, um, and so as of today, they have not done a single thing to honor that law. That law has not been implemented. And so extractive industries have been able to um, totally disregard nature's rights, so to speak. The situation in Bolivia is that they're undertaking an extremely ambitious infrastructural agenda mm -hmm. where they will actually double their debt, invest $26 billion into creating these huge industrial projects, including these two mega dams, but also doing petroleum exploration, nuclear power development. So they're energy-driven Energy. They want to be, the goal, Bolivia's goal is to become the energetic heart of South America. They want to export energy. And so that is their goal right that's, now. That's their play for influence. Exactly. In the continent. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it's hard to convince foreign nations to buy your electricity when it's very far away and it's going to be very expensive to transport it. The dams are going to be extremely expensive and, and typically what you see with, with mega dams is the final price that is paid, the final cost of the dams usually triples or quadruples. It could double, triple or quadruple the initial proposed cost. So say it's $2 billion, you might end up paying $7 billion dollars. That happens very frequently, pretty regularly with mega dam construction. So you've mentioned before that you're certainly driven just to find out more and talk with locals and the impact, but do you have a seed of an idea in your mind of how you want to help or how you want to help yourself <laughs> learn more on this issue? So this project, Still River Silent Jungle, is actually a collaboration between us kayakers mm -hmm. <laughs> and the local communities of the region near the town of Ruinabaque mm -hmm. that's located in Bolivia, in the Bolivian Amazon. And we're also collaborating with Madidi National Park. So our purpose, well, we want to go there and kayak. Let's, let's <laughs> and be we honest. Make yeah. A, yeah, it's let's okay. Be it's okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> we are adventurers. Yes, it's okay. We want to go. We want to kayak. Um but we're also working with the indigenous communities and we're working with the national park to encourage the conservation of the national parks, of the communities and of the river. So the layout of this plan, of the layout of this project, how it's going to go is that we're going to create a documentary, 10 to 15 minutes, and we're going to actually descend the Tuichi River. And the Tuichi is a tributary to the Beni. The dams are proposed on the Beni. Um, but the Tuichi is in Madidi National Park, um, where the dam will flood. So 
We're going to descend the Tuichi. We'll have three to four kayakers, and then we'll have a raft. And on the raft will be Ruth Alipa's Kuki, who is from the Uchupiamona com- community. And she's wonderful and amazing and a very strong voice and representative of multiple indigenous communities down there. And we will also have members from Mandiri National Park with us. So we're going to document the descent, but what we're also going to do at the end, but then there are a couple other parts of the projects of the project as well. So at the end of the descent, the idea is that we would uh, donate the raft we are somehow going to transport to Bolivia to the national park so that they can use it to patrol the river for illegal miners, illegal loggers, and therefore, you know, help support them in protecting the forest on the ground. And we're also going to just help train uh, with whitewater and swift water rescue for them. Another part of the project is that we're working with adventure scientists, the organization, and we'll actually be collecting some data for them on their Global Pollinators Project. So that's very exciting. But the ultimate goal of Still River Silent Jungle is to give voice and to hear the voices of the people from the region and what their reaction to the project is, what message they want to spread about it. Because right now it's very, very hard for them to gain support you're going to amplify a voice. Really. Exactly. I mean, you're, this is, it's an advocacy project ultimately, right? I mean, it's an awareness and advocacy project. Exactly. We're just going to help yeah. raise awareness yeah. and we're just kind of a grain of sand in that whole discussion. Right. I think what's really intriguing about that and talking to you and hearing kind of your story of all your time in South America is it really, it represents <laughs> in a focused trip, it, it kind of represents your, your life path on this issue because you're, you were inspired by a concentrated period of time in a small community investigating the impacts of potential hydroelectric development. And then that spurred your interest and now as part of trying to share how impactful that was and how important that is to everybody else who this seems like a foreign concept, it's, it's storytelling. You know, you were going to go and we're going to actually speak with the people who are directly involved. And this is a re-representation of kind of how you were influenced on, on this issue and how you developed a passion for it. Exactly. I think you worded it very well. And it's, um, it's an ongoing story. <laughs> yeah, I think that's that's super cool. I think cool. we're just in the rising action right now. Yeah, so. I mean, I think that's awesome because that, that, to me, it makes me feel great because that's like, I mean, it's going to be successful because clearly it's like based on, on where you've been and where you've now come. Um, and um, so how, how can we help you with the project? <laughs> what do you guys need? Well, I mean, we have a great story. We have a fantastic team. We, you know, we have great kayakers, great locals, great scientists with us. Um, we have access to our story. We have a lot of fantastic elements. Right now we're in the stage of fundraising. So we're looking for funds, um, monetary funds and uh, gear donations from companies is the main thing that we're looking for. So right now we're just financing the trip. The funds we're raising right now are purely to get the project done and uh, get the filming done and to go down the river and to, yeah, basically finance us until the end of June. Okay. Well, we'll certainly at the Adventure Activist uh, post some information on our website and uh, list a link at the show notes here at the end of this episode. But if if anybody wants to Google uh, this project or want to catch any extra information, do you want to just remind everybody what the name of the project is? Yeah, the... So the project's called Still River Silent Jungle, and our website is madidifilm.com. That's M-A-D-I-D-I film.com. I got a feeling in my head 
As we close our interview, we go beyond her film project, and we speak about other opportunities with her platform as a female athlete, and finish with her perspective on the importance of pushing past perceived limits. I guess at this point, kind of wrapping, wrapping up, Haley, I wanted to, to step back. You had mentioned how you, you still very much consider yourself still in like the student phase, almost like you're still getting information on it, which uh, I think with all the time you've invested on this issue um, and now doing a TED talk, um, I think you do need to start to accept that you're, you're starting to become a bit of a, a leader on this issue. <laughs> and I, I think maybe some of that was borne out a little bit in, in this last trip you just got back from in Chiapas and kind of what the context of that trip was. Oh, yes, that was, uh, <laughs> that was an amazing experience. Um, so I just got back from Chiapas, Mexico, like you said, where the Zapatista women were, were holding the first international gathering for women in struggle for sport, culture, art, and politics. And, they and I'm, were, I'm aware of the, the Zapatistas and kind of the conflict there, but maybe for some of the listeners that aren't as well uh, versed on the issues there in Chiapas, um, can you maybe kind of give them a quick brief on that, that group and who they represent? Well, I don't know if I could do the Zapatistas justice, yeah. um, <laughs> but they are they're indigenous people in Mexico who are protecting their way of life. They historically have been very closed off from kind of the rest of society. And so for them to open their doors, and this is totally from the ground up, the, these women Zapatistas who have, they have no money, they have no resources, no social media, you know, and then all of a sudden in, invite and hold and host this huge gathering of women from all walks of life to to just listen to all of these different perspectives from every corner of the world, to have talks and workshops, it was really, really phenomenal. And I think they got 10 times the turnout that they expected to have. Was and this the first gathering? This or? is the first, the first gathering for them. And I think there will be many more to come, but it, uh, it was very special. And I... I was really lucky to have the opportunity to speak there about um, about women in extreme sport, specifically in kayaking, which is a really interesting topic too. And I was also really lucky to have help with that talk. A lot was, was from my own experience, but I also drew on kind of the experience and expertise of women that I found really influential in, um, in the field, like Noria Newman and Darby McAdams and um, Sophie Reynoso. So I think that will be a, you know, a talk to be developed further in the future as well. It was also my first time giving a talk in Spanish. So that was. <laughs> How did they find out about you? How did you get the invite? Oh, I, I have a really good friend, Carla Astorga, who, um, who worked in the past a lot with uh, the Zapatistas. And so she found out about this and she passed it along to me. And so she's living in Chiapas right now. And then I registered for it. So. I guess now I'm, I'm instantly curious. I mean, what sort of themes did you address as far as, I guess, being an adventure athlete as a woman to this audience? If there was a, a one-liner or kind of an overarching theme to what you wanted to share, what, what was it when you were down there? Take your time. I know you want a, a one-liner, but... Um, <laughs> you can expand on you it. Can, I'll want. expand yeah. on it. Maybe you can just take one line. <laughs> <laughs> So I think the talk I gave would probably be a different talk than what I would give to kayakers in general, because these people pretty much, I don't, I don't think anyone there was involved in, in an extreme sport. It's like, how do you even, I think before you talk about women in kayaking, you have to talk about kayaking because it's very distinct. It's a very distinct community <laughs> and as, as our most extreme sport communities. Um, but I think the main takeaway of the talk for me throughout my kayaking experience uh, from the beginning I remember looking at kayakers on waves or going down waterfalls and I thought oh I can't do that I can't do that I don't even want to do that that looks horrifying 
And then step by step, you push past one perceived limitation. And then you realize, oh, I just went over my horizon and I'm still here. I'm fine. Now my horizon's set a little bit further. And so I think it's about pushing past limits and realizing what your real limits are. And I think especially for women, when you realize how far you really can go and what your real limits are, you know, and that involves taking risks, doing things that are perceived as being more masculine, you know, um, and are generally discouraged. But when you do find out your, your own limitations, what you can do, what you can't do, where you walk the line, then... I think you're less likely to be limited by the limitations ascribed to you by society, whether you're a man or woman, I think, but, you know, especially for women, I think, who have historically been ascribed certain limitations and who are in general uh, not encouraged to take as many risks as men. I think when you do take those risks and you can push past certain limitations that you think you have, you realize that you're capable of much more. If you were in the business of giving life advice, or I know you're not a social media savvy person or like it too much, but if you, <laughs> if you, you had that? your, if you had your moment to like have a post on oh, national man. geographics, Instagram or something, I mean, I think, uh, well, uh, what kind well, of advice here, do you here, think? Here, you, let me tell you this. Uh, yeah. I also work with uh, teenagers yeah. who are really awesome, really fun to work with. Oh, yeah, because um, as, as an educator still now, yeah, right? Yeah, You're so working worked, on the rivers now. Yeah. Mm-hmm, so I worked with uh, the Alzar School, which is a semester school that does kayaking and backpacking. Yeah. They're located in Cascade, Idaho. And then I'm about to start working with World Class Academy in the Columbia River Gorge. And um, I think I'm just constantly impressed by... I think teenagers are really impressive sometimes. <laughs> you could take that word in a lot of ways, yes. Well, <laughs> and I, I guess I mean it in the ways like they have so much potential. And I see a lot of students that, you know, had or who have so much more talent than I had at that age or so much more initiative. Mm-hmm. And so I think it really is that initiative where it's like, even if you don't know which direction to go, just if anything is pulling you at all, just explore it a little more. Just ask a few more questions and just push more a little bit in that direction. I'd look back and, um, I, I mean, I'm still young, <laughs> but I, I look back to when I was a, a teenager and, and think like, wow, if I had just pushed a little bit more in that direction, I could have really gone somewhere in that direction. Or if I had, you know, this is like old person advice. This is saying to a young person, but <laughs> well, you're talking to an old guy. It's totally cool. No, I no, no. I mean, like this is like coming from an old person, yeah. and I'm, I'm not. Yeah. But um, just saying, just take the opportunities, and and if you are interested in something, and and even if you think like, oh, I have nothing to do with this, but it interests me in some way, and I can't explain why, but I'm just interested in it. Just explore it a little bit more, and you never know totally confiscate your life who knows (laughs) (laughs) or you might be just totally inspired or you might say okay I'm I'm glad I answered that question and now I'm gonna go the other direction driving down highway 395 it's been a while since I felt so alive Okay, well, once again, I'd like to thank Haley for popping by last week. To learn more about her upcoming work, you can click on our projects tab at theadventureactivist.org. You can make your donation to our project right there on our site. Or go directly to the film site at medidifilm.com. I'll leave some links in the show notes. On tap and coming up, I'll be part of the Five Point Film Festival in Carbondale on April 20th. We'll be doing a live podcast as part of the film festival there. So if any of you happen to be there or have someone else you'd like me to talk to, well, send me a note. I'm always down for another conversation. And thanks to Evan Phillips for helping with the production of this episode. We connected through his amazing podcast. And if you'd like to learn more about climbing in the great ranges of Alaska, check out the Fern Line. Even better, feel free to purchase some of his excellent music on iTunes. 
Thanks for listening to episode eight. We hope you've been with us from the beginning, but if not, check out the other episodes on our site, iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud. If this or prior episodes sparked conversation or inspired you on your next adventure project, please let us know. If you have just a few spare minutes, give us a good review, click some stars our way, or even better, share with some of your friends. Your show of support, as always, means so much. Thanks all, and keep adventuring. Well, I've been thinking about you, girl, and I just want you to know, and now I know, now I know. Don't really